Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. And I'm Jeff Benjamin, Wealth Management Editor here at ETF.com. This week, we're talking with Matt Collins, Head of ETFs for PGIM Investments, the asset management arm of Prudential. Matt, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. So, Matt, I want to start off by talking about buffer ETFs. This is obviously a growing area of the ETF industry, a very popular part of the ETF industry. And buffer ETFs have been around for several years now, but you recently launched some new buffer ETFs. Can you tell us what differentiates your buffer ETFs from the others that are out there? Yeah, I would, I would, I would love to. And I, you know, we're going to talk about sort of the growing nature and all of this interest going into buffer ETFs has really come over the last two years. It's become a 30 billion plus market um, in just a few years. But historically, these are structured products or options packages or, you know, various kind of products and other vehicles that have been going on for 30 years. And as a sort of representative of PGM and, and Prudential, you know, the idea of flex options and putting a package together of, of, of flex options to meet a need in the market, right? I want X percent downside protection is something that, um, you know, we have deep experience in going back 30 years. So while it's becoming popular in ETFs and we're really excited to, to be in the space, it's something we have a, a core expertise in. Um, and, and for us, as we saw all of this explosive growth coming from other products and other firms, we felt like we needed to be in the space. Um, but most importantly, experience always matters, right? And, and so does scale. Um, as a trillion plus manager at, at PGM scale, from our perspective, matters as, as well. But um, mm -hmm. when you look at these products from our perspective, there's to some extent commodities, Right. And, and they're labeled as active. And I'm happy to talk about, you know, why they're not actually active from from our perspective. But um, they are essentially buying the same options in the portfolios if, if the buffer level is, is right. And if you think about it from that perspective, what matters next? It's cost. It's the expense ratio. And these were really expensive products, ETFs in the market at, at 70 plus basis points expense ratio. We felt like the combination of our experience plus the ability to come in at a much more competitive rate at, at 50 basis points um, was an area we felt like we needed to, to get to work and, and get to it. Matt, I know Jeff's going to ask you more about the fees, but I just wanted to follow up on something you said. You said these are labeled as active, but they're not really active, which is yeah. interesting because every time we see you know, how much money is going into active ETFs and we see this big number, a lot of that is going into buffer ETFs, but you said they're not really active. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to. And um, if I veer off track, you uh, you you hop in and, and correct me, please. But you know, from our perspective, we buy the options package the, or the buffer level, the last business day of the month, and the ETF starts that outcome period on the first business day of the month. We don't do anything unless there's net flows or redemptions or, or creations. We don't do anything until the outcome period ends when we rebalance in kind at the end of, of the period. We are not trying to 
outperform within that range. It is a very straightforward buffer. The issue, though, if you think about it, you know, from a regu- regulatory perspective, you can't call yourself a passive product unless you are essentially one for one tracking the benchmark. But then you get into, well, what is what's a benchmark? And typically, a benchmark can't be derivative based, right? So we're doing this against the S&P 500, because that's where the interest is and where we feel like clients have the most interest. Um, but there's no index out there that is S&P, but no downside until 20% or, or, or 12%. So from a labeling perspective, we can't call ourselves passive because there's no real benchmark. Um, that that matches what we're doing. But we moral of a story, we don't want investors to think that we are trying to outperform in any way beyond what the um, defined outcome is um, in the prospectus and, and our website. Matt, we know that uh, the ETF space, uh, to succeed, often you have to be first, unique, or cheap. And uh, you guys went cheap. Uh, and when I say cheap, I mean... Uh, by fees as i understand it you guys came in at 35 basis points right 50 50 50, basis points yes you're you're kind of pushing a fee war here aren't you we felt like the expense ratios that were out there were not appropriate Mm -hmm. and it's been this case for 30 years in the etf industry to your point if you're first the money tends to come if you are first in an interesting space. There were two firms out there that were first to the space. And when that happens, they feel like they can price their products, you know, in a way that's a little bit more than what it probably costs to run them. And, you know, from, from our perspective, we aren't just jumping in it because we saw the interest. We have a historical experience here, but we felt like we could offer it at a 50 basis point fee um, which is, you know, call it 24 basis points lower than the average in the category. So, yeah, we we felt like there was a lot of room uh, to improve from a product perspective. Is there still a lot of room on the fees? If you're asking if 50 basis points is more than the average S&P 500 ETF uh, expense ratio, yes, mm-hmm. uh, ab- absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised if there's, you know, some level of, of compression in the future, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes. And Matt, what do you think about buffer ETFs in the context of the current market environment? Obviously we've saw quite a substantial rally in the S and P 500 last year, but we're mm-hmm. hanging right around the, the highs from 2022, the record highs, the market has been pretty choppy. If you look at it over the past year or two, is this the right environment for these type of products? Is this something investors should be considering with so much uncertainty out there? So, you know, we just talked about hot products and then being first. And a lot of times that comes in sort of the niche uh, categories. And given all the interest in buffers, I think the first reaction from our clients is, is this a trend based off of perceived volatility in the market um, or maybe where the market is, is potentially going? That is not how we view these in this, in our experience, not how investors use them. And, and think about it from this perspective. If, if you're, for a long-term investor, if your target average annualized return for an equity portion of a um, diversified portfolio is, say, 
maybe it's six, maybe it's 10, but let's just say 8% is sort of your target long-term annualized return on your equity sleeve of, of the portfolio. For these buffer products, you know, they have caps and buffers. And if you want to go into the education, I'm, I'm happy to, but for these, let's just say the cap on a buffer product, which is the amount of upside you have in the market, given sort of the protection you've, you've bought, if it's 15%, for most investors that are long-term investors, they don't want the lottery ticket. They want to protect themselves in bad markets, and they want to experience something around that range that they expect from a, from a return perspective. That's why these are becoming S&P 500 or U.S. large cap replacements, because investors like that much narrower range of outcomes that is a little bit closer to reality um, for, for a long-term investor. And, and Matt, can you talk about how interest rates affect buffer ETFs? Do they have any impact on either, you know, the options premiums or do they have any impact on the demand for buffers considering now you can go out on the bond market and get 5%? Um, how do interest rates impact these products? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And that should be the first thing an investor looks at. Go to the issuer's website and... One of the reasons there's not a ton of buffer products out there is because you have to essentially build a new website and a new data stream to feed the education to the investors to tell them what how much buffer is left, but to your question, how much cap is left. So when you buy the options package, you're going to go out and get the buffer. If we're offering a 12 buffer ETF, we're going to go get a 12 buffer ETF, but the cap changes. How much upside do you have in the market given that level of, of buffer? You have to go to the website and see what the cap is on that ETF. The interest rate environment will impact the cap. Absolutely. And the way to think about it is there's two factors that influence the cap. It's volatility. And the way to think about it is more volatility equals a higher cap. Lower interest rates equals a lower cap. So, you know, sometimes... You know, they're working in opposite directions. Sometimes they're working together to bring that, that cap up. Those are really the two main things. And that's why it's so important to check the website to understand, hey, I see a 15% cap on your website today, but I'm, in, I'm rolling to your February 2026 um, ETF in a few years. Maybe the rate environment's totally different. And the cap may go from 15 to 10. The investor really has to understand when that ETF rolls at the next outcome period, how much has the interest rate environment impacted that, that cap? Um, I want to ask you about a, a different uh, PGM fund in a second here, but first I want to, I want to stay on this for a second, this buffer idea. Is this a, a strategy for the times for the market environment right now with interest rates where they are? And, and if that's not the case, is it for a, certain type of investor, like somebody close to retirement or in retirement. I, I'm I'm just not seeing the the market for uh, younger investors in the accumulation phase. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So I guess let's stay with the younger investor that is 401k-ish in their um in their investment portfolio, right? From that perspective, do they stick with straight equity exposure through the S&P or 
you know, other other equity vehicles. I think that that absolutely still makes sense. I don't think we're here to, you know, displace the thought that that doesn't doesn't work, right? Because the the effect of compounding returns for a forty year investor makes sense. However, for the investor that has built wealth to some extent, right? I'm not talking ultra wealthy, but a little bit further in their career, maybe they're approaching their retirement, maybe they're in retirement and their horizons 20 plus years um, post-retirement. Mm-hmm. That's still a lot, right? If you think about a 55-year-old or 60-year-old that retires, but they need money for the next 30, 40 years, you can't give up equity-like returns for that period. That That is very difficult for an investor. So to your point, cash is on the sidelines for a zillion reasons that we'll never be able to, to quantify. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it is they want equity exposure for those cash investors, but they don't want the downside. This is really meant for either skittish investors or folks that just don't want to put their entire portfolio <laughs> in bonds um, right. because they're close to retirement. It's really that middle ground to your, to your point. Okay. Speaking of bonds, uh, tell us about the PGM ultra short bond ETF. How does that compare to the typical money market funder T-bill ETF? Great question. Um, so this was our, our first ETF we launched in, in 2018. It was the number one selling ultra short ETF last year in, in the marketplace um, on the active side, excluding um, the CLOs that are out there in the market. For us, it is a natural extension to move out of cash. It is a cash plus vehicle that offers a little more variability in, we'll just call it the share price versus a a stable NAV, but with a yield pickup that is material, right? So if if the yield pickup on average for a typical ultra short is, let's just say 40 to 70 basis points or so over your typical money market, you know, for a lot of investors, they like that value proposition because overall those ultra short products are very stable. Um, you know, for us, we have significant experience managing the liquidity of um, our entire complex at, at PGM with this team. Um, but also I, I, I do want to mention that, you know, about 15 to 18% of our portfolio are AAA CLOs. Um, that has an even higher yield pickup than sort of your average investment grade bond in, in the market. So there's been so much interest. But what I would say for clients is it's an attractive replacement for the short end of the market. So it's not just a money market plus, but it can be a really attractive value proposition for a short corporate, a short investment grade. Take some of that risk off, take some of that duration off, but still maintain an attractive yield level. And Matt, do you have a view on kind of if rates have peaked or where they're headed from here? Because I know obviously last year was a very easy environment. If you knew that rates were going to go up all year, just Mm -hmm. plop your money in money market funds, keep your duration very short. How do you think investors should position their fixed income portfolios today where the uncertainty about rates is much higher? So we're starting to see expected interest rate cuts being priced in the bond market and longer duration vehicles, whether it's core, core plus passive products have had a, a really good couple of months. And that's because we're starting to see it, it priced in 
I think from our perspective, we're not quite sure um, when and how much because inflation is, is is still a concern out there, but we're pretty comfortable that it stopped <laughs> from from a from a hike perspective, and we're on the front edge um, of a lot of investor demand uh, from our perspective into call it adding a little bit of of duration to to the portfolio with the expectation that that sort of trend continues over the next eighteen months. Matt, what about the PGM total return bond ETF? Who is that for? Is that a direct competitor to the iShares Core U.S. Aggregate Bond ETF? So the total return bond ETF, PTRB, that's our flagship strategy um, from, from PGM fixed income. So PGM follows a multi-manager approach. We have PGM fixed income, which manages a little over uh, $750 billion, um, in in AUM. So um, one of the largest risk management teams in the world, um, and particularly with, within the U.S. market. We are a really big uh, risk management-focused firm, and the TRB product from a retail perspective has been available for 25-plus years. And we are really big believers in offering ETFs that leverage what we do well. So if you think back, there's the front edge of this active market was a lot of managers doing smart beta or something different than what they um, were were known for. Uh, let, let's say this is um, right up the street with our flagship total return bond um, strategy that we've been running for a, a long time, but it is a core plus strategy. And from our perspective, we compete in that core product, but I wouldn't call it that all investors would sort of displace their core or ag position for a core plus. We see a lot of investors with the complement of a core and then adding a core plus vehicle um, because core plus for the long-term investor has great risk-adjusted returns for the long-term investor. And if you can enhance your total return experience alongside a core position, even a low cost core position, whether it's active or, or passive, that really enhances that bond portion of, of the portfolio for long-term investors. Matt, another one of your ETFs I want to talk about is your CLO ETF, ticker symbol PAAA. Uh, a lot of people, they hear the term CLO, but they're not quite familiar with it. It obviously has, you know, there's something we heard back in the financial crisis, but I know you know, they got a bad reputation back there, the alphabet soup of CDOs, CLOs, and things yep. like that. Um, but can you enlighten us? What is a CLO ETF? How does it work? Absolutely. Another hot part of, of, of the market, if, if you think about active in, in the marketplace, Buffer was a big story. Conversions were a big story. CLOs are a big story. And I'm going to go, you could, we could probably rewind and, and go back to what I mentioned on, on buffers, but PGM is one of the largest managers of CLOs in the world. So we manage about a hundred billion in securitized product AUM, 50 plus billion in CLOs alone. Um, so we, we saw sort of a, a big rush to, to AAA CLOs out there in the market. Um, and we, same story, um, offering the lowest cost CLO product out there in, in the market. But to answer your question on sort of what's going on here, how do I think about risk relative to what you know folks would ex 
think about in the mortgage world or securitized world back in, in 08, you have to focus on credit quality. So PAAA, true to its name, is AAA rated securities only. And historically, there has never been a default for a AAA rated CLO. You go down just a few notches, whether it's AA, particularly in the in the triple B, and then the triple B when defaults start to, to happen, it is a wildly different story between AAA and lower rated quality. And to have no defaults in that AAA segment, but you're getting a yield that is materially better than money markets. It's materially better than the ultra short that we we talked a little bit of, about. And it's materially better than the broad market with limited, if any, duration, about a 0 0.10 duration. For clients, if you can get AAA rated, low duration, but a yield that is materially better than the ag or other securities, that's a really attractive value proposition. And if you're sort of asking, well, why now? The reason is that was a market exclusive to institutional investors, the, the CLO market. And I, I mentioned we're a large player. We're a large player because of credential and the insurance needs and insurance, excuse me, um, institutional clients externally. Now it's available to retail. And I think from a portfolio construction standpoint, clients are starting to see that value prop take off. So we do think this is going to be a lot like a client would think about a mortgage-backed security allocation in their portfolio as an example, or a, um, a, a complement to their cash plus um, segment of the portfolio. So we're excited to, to, to be in the market. What is the best environment for CLOs, Matt? And I know you kind of just touched on that a little bit, but where do they do well and where do they not do so well? You have... Uh, so in, in times of, of stress, mm -hmm. deep stress, right? So you know, 2008, um, 2020, CLOs from a risk perspective can look like the broader investment grade bond market. That's how to think about during deep, deep stress um, markets. But I, I, I want to emphasize one point, and this is why CLOs make so much sense. AAA CLOs make so much sense in, in a portfolio. If I break apart the ag into high yield, EM debt, investment grade agency, treasuries, so on and so forth, uh, AAA CLOs have the lowest correlation to the ag of, amongst all of the breakout portions of the ag at a 0 0.20 correlation that AAA CLOs have to the ag. And then to treasuries, it has a negative 0.1. So if you think about the stability of AAAs and the enhanced yield, but you're getting a lower correlation to the market, that's how to think about it from a portfolio construction standpoint. There is risk in CLOs, absolutely. In general, across, you know, it's, it's a single asset class, but the risk is just vastly different between AAA and lower rated tranches. And from our perspective, you don't get compensated from a risk and return perspective to take on credit risk um, in that in that space. So that's where I think clients should think about where they work and where they don't work in, in market cycles. Okay. And and kind of wrapping up here, Matt, a uh, little bit of a outlook for, for PGM and your ETF uh, business. 
what can we expect to see in the future from you guys? Well, I guess I can um, summarize our future with how we we just talked about a little bit. We have, as a trillion dollar manager, we have a, a lot of experience in different segments of the market. Our number one goal to client is to not tinker with what we do well. We want to offer strategy that we have experience and we want to offer at an extremely cost competitive segment. And I, I think from an active perspective, particularly on the mutual fund side, there's been so many, so much outflow. It's not because people don't like active, it's because of the cost. So our goal is to offer clients what we do well at an expense ratio much closer to your typical sort of passive category average. So um, we are really focused on launching um, substantially similar clones, however you want to phrase it, to a lot of our existing strategies. And then for some of these other like buffers, like CLOs, come in with a product we have experience in, but really lower the cost. Um, so people can have an access point to active at a, at a much more competitive fee rate. Fantastic. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for your time. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.